few weeks ago I mentioned to you that Karen loves me for at least 10,000 reasons. Right, babe? 1,000? 1,000 reasons? You love me at least for 10,000 reasons. At least. Okay. It's, uh, that's how it is. Isn't that how it is with uh, you, Mike, and Amy? 10,000 reasons? At least 10,000 reasons, right? Am I right, Leslie? You love your wife at least for 10,000 reasons. Do you remember why I told you that she loved me? One of the reasons that, that she loves me so much? Do you remember what I said? Tanya remembers. Because I, I like chick flicks. I, I, uh, I think you owned up to it too, didn't you, Mike? I did. Yeah, I like, I like a good romance. Does anybody remember what my favorite love scene was and what movie it was in? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner. That's right. Do you remember the scene? Anybody remember the scene? Do you remember uh, Robin, Robin and Lady? Do you remember? I said the American Robin Hood. <laughs> the American Robin Hood, of course. Um, yeah, Robin and Lady Mary went together, and Robin said, you know, you've got to get word to your cousin, King Richard, because the sheriff of, of Nottingham is, is plotting to take over the kingdom in his absence. And he said, you've got to get word to him. And Lady Marion said, well, Nottingham has, has spies everywhere. It would, be, it would be extremely dangerous to do this, right? And Robin says, will you do it for your king? And Lady Marion looked deeply into his eyes, and the music comes up. And she says, no. What does she say? I'll do it for you. I love that scene. Every time I watch that scene, I, it makes me cry. I mean, who doesn't want to, you know, who doesn't want to be in love like that? The reason I brought that up is because I want to get some mileage out of the way the movie ended. Does anybody remember how the movie ended? Does anybody? Dandra remembers. Well, Lady Marion has been taken by the sheriff of Nottingham, and she's being forced to marry him against her will, right? And so Robin... Robin uh, gets wind of this. He, he gets his little band of, of guys together and they attack the castle. They're hopelessly outnumbered, but they attack the castle. Robin fights and kills several of the sheriff's men. He's catapulted over a wall. He finds out that Lady Marion's in a tower uh, and Nottingham is trying to marry her at this very moment. So he jumps off the tower, holds a banner, and he smashes into the, into the glass window, right? And he pulls out his sword and he fights Nottingham to the death. And Marion... Lady Marion, she falls. They fall together after Nottingham is dying. She, she, they fall together. And Lady Marion says, you came for me. Anybody remember what Robin says? He says, I would die for you. Isn't that perfect? Isn't that perfect? And what I want to say to you is, you know, who, who doesn't want to be loved like that? And what I want to say is, if you're a Christian, you've been loved like that. You've been loved like that. The groom has come for his bride. It's the most beautiful love story that's ever been told. I, I think I've mentioned to you several times, why is it that fairy tales and love stories endure? They endure for a very simple reason. They resonate in the human heart. The best love stories, the best fairy tales, they contain... Uh, these virtues, honor, um, integrity, honesty, fidelity, courage, valor, daring, faithfulness, selflessness, sacrifice, and expensive love. This is why love stories and fairy tales uh, 
endure. These things are the best things in the human heart. We recognize that and we can relate to that. We know, we know that we want to live like that. We want to have that kind of passion in our life. We want to be willing to give ourselves away. We want, to be, we want to learn how to be selfless with ourselves. To love unconditionally and without recourse. At some level, I think every woman wants to be Lady Marian. And at some level, I think every man wants to be Robin Hood. As one theologian said, the world of the gospel is the world of fairy tale with one notable exception. Does anybody know what the exception would be? It's true. The gospel is true. It has all this beauty and passion and sacrifice and selflessness. It's, it's just filled with all these beautiful and high and lofty things. And even more, it's true. And this is how God has loved His people. And the groom has come for His bride. It's a beautiful, beautiful Story. We've talked a lot about it in the last few weeks. Uh, the genuine Christian, the born-again believers caught up in the sacred romance. That being with God Himself. And again, this is one of the most breathtaking stories ever told. Jesus Christ giving Himself away. Dying for His people. The warrior shepherd has come for us and no one or no thing can stop Him. He has come to rescue us. It's the greatest love story ever told. I, I told the people down in Doha, I mean, I understand it theologically, but I'm, all, I'm always astonished at, as a minister, as a, of a preacher, as, as a preacher of the gospel, you know, why there aren't 10,000 people pressing into this room to hear, the, to hear about Jesus Christ. I understand it theologically. We understand the nature of man. But beloved, this is the most beautiful story ever told. This is the most compelling story ever told. So as John begins to close this letter to the church, the Holy Spirit prompts him to remind us of God's great love for us. As we've studied 1 John, we've been seeing how the Christian is supposed to love the church and how we're supposed to love one another. We've been talking about that. Oh, you know, John mentions that over and over and over and over again. It's one of the hallmarks of true conversion. If you don't love the body, if you don't love the brethren, you're simply not a Christian. It doesn't matter what you say or how many sacraments you've done or how many prayers you've parroted. None of that really matters. If you, 1 John is the book of assurance. If you don't love the brethren, you're not a Christian. This is one of the premier hallmarks in this book. We are to love the brethren in a sacrificial, sacrificial way. And look what it says there in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 5. This is the one who what? Came. <laughs> As Lady Marion said, you came for me. Yes, God came for His people. Beloved, this is an awesome story. It really should change every day, for the re every, every day of the rest of your life. If you've met Him, <laughs> it should change every single day. He's come for His people. The groom has come for His bride. And no one can stop Him. Nothing can stop Him or dissuade Him. 
He has one singular focus, to glorify the Father and to redeem a people for Himself. And nothing can change that. Jesus is born to go to the cross. Jesus is born to save His people. And we've talked about it many times. I mention it to you all the time. This, this infinite condescension. This is God in a manger. If it doesn't blow your mind, you're not understanding it. If it doesn't explode your heart to understand that the infinite I am God is in a manger because He loves you, you've not understood it. You've not begun to understand it. If it doesn't move your heart, if it doesn't change your life, if it doesn't compel you to give yourself away to Him even as He has given Himself away to you, can we be in enough awe? <laughs> can we talk about it enough? This infinite condescension of Jesus Christ. Can we be caught up in the wonder of it enough? I say we can't. It's I am in a manger. It's Adonai teaching in the temple. It's Elohim preaching on the mount. It's El Shaddai nailed to a tree. Beloved, we should be a worshiping people. We should be a people of great power and great passion because this God is. He's left no stone unturned to redeem a people for Himself. It's worship-provoking, is it not? It's worship-provoking. This is the One who came. Jesus has come. The Son of God has come to save His people. He's not only Emmanuel, God with us, He is God for us. Yeah, it blows my mind. I don't know about you. As I was studying this, this week and preparing to, to speak to you, um, I was thinking about Jesus' first miracle. Who knows what Jesus' first miracle was? The water into wine, right? You know, I've actually read, I've actually read commentaries where the, at least the, the illusion was made that this was a frivolous use of power. <laughs> was it a frivolous use of power? What is the meaning of Jesus' first miracle? Why is it pregnant with meaning? I mean, it doesn't really compare to you know, calling a dead man out of the tomb, right? Or giving a man born blind sight, does it? It does in that there's a ton of symbolism here. He performs his first miracle at a wedding. Oh, the groom is here! Yes? The groom is here! And he turns the water into wine. He has, he has put to death dead religion and he's brought the born again kind, right? He's brought His joy. He's brought God's joy with Him. That's the symbolism of the wine. He's brought God's joy to give to His people. It's an awesome miracle. <laughs> the groom is here. The groom has come to redeem His bride. How can you not, how can you not worship? How can you not give your life away? How can you not be a radical disciple? If, if, we're, if we're not moving in, these, in this direction, we've not understood it. We've simply not understood who has come and what He's done in our behalf. You heard Mike read the, the verses. 
And I don't know, Mike, what translation were you reading from? ESV. ESV. That's an excellent translation. ESV. There were nine times there was a word that Mike read from, from, the, from his translation. In my translation, the NAS, which is the other translation I, I prefer because it's the most literal to the Greek, um, it uses the word... Well, I'm going to read you the verses, and you tell me what words you hear nine times, okay? Let's just do it that way. Verse 7. I'm going to pick up at verse 7. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, and the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning His Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. What word did you hear nine times? Witness. Now when Mike read it, it was, it was testimony or uh, testament or something like that. Beloved, anytime you see God repeat words like this, in, in so many times in such a compact area, he's, there's something you're supposed to understand about this. And there's something that I'm, I'm supposed to understand about this. God has not only sent His Son, He has left irrefutable witness that He has sent His Son. This is a big deal for you and me and the whole rest of the world. The whole rest of the world stands condemned not only all who reject Christ Jesus stand condemned not only because He came, but because there's irrefutable evidence that He came. And that's what John is saying in the text tonight. It's irrefutable. The Son of God has come. He has come. And God says, I've given witness. I've given credible witness that any reasonable man should, should be able to believe. God has not only come, He's given witness to the fact that He's come. Beloved, this is, this is something that uh, is awesome to me. We understand. We have God's words, the 66 books of, of the Bible. God has given us His Word. He revealed it, and He's preserved it, and He delivered it to you. And He means for you to read it, and eat it, and love it, and live it. He sent it to you. It's His love letter to you. And He means for you to use it. God forbid it sits on the shelf all week <laughs> and collects dust. God means for you to, to be consuming His Word, living His Word, do the Word, as we talk about so often in this church. It's an awesome gift that the Lord has given us. We have His Word. We have His testimony. We have His witness coming out of the Word for us. Remember what, uh, what was the Holy Spirit's purpose in prompting John to write the Gospel? We talked about this a few weeks ago. You may remember John 20.31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through Him. God has given us His witness that we might Believe and have life. 
We also talked about why the Holy Spirit has prompted John to write 1 John. We're going to talk a lot about it next week. I'm just going to park on verse 13 next week. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know and that you, uh, have, that you may know you have eternal life. So we have clear purpose for why John wrote the Gospel and why John has written 1 John. And I won't talk about it next week because next week is Easter. So we'll have, we, won't, we won't be in 1 John next week. We'll be looking at the cross next week. God has given His testimony that we might believe. And believing we would have life. And having life, we would do the Word. That's it. It's real simple. I tell you this all the time. Christianity is extremely simple. <laughs> he gives us His testimony that we would believe, that we would have life, and then we would know that we have life, and then we would do the Word. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, I think. Why does God want us to know that we have life? So we can be at our leisure? No! So you can be word-doers. So you can do Hebrews 11. You would understand. I have license to do Hebrews 11. I'm a born-again child of God. I'm a son or daughter of the King. <laughs> right? So go out in the world and live it fearlessly. Fearlessly. Boldly. Without qualification. That's why God wants His people to know. Not that you, you know, you've checked your religious box. That's not what it's about. And that I can be at my leisure. That's not what it's about. God wants you to know so you'll be a radical Christian. <laughs> you'll be a radical disciple. You'll be living the Word out in the world. This is God's message from Genesis to Revelation. I'm an awesome God. Believe me. Receive life from me. Know you have life and live it huge. This is the challenge uh, from God to His people from the beginning to the end of the book. And God has left a compelling witness regarding Himself in the Bible. That's why all we do here is the Bible. We don't do anything else but the Bible. We teach our kids the Bible. We preach from the Bible. That's all we do. It's God's testimony. Why in the world would I stand up here and tell you about anything else? Why would I try to entertain you when I have the most important job and the best job in the world? I stand up here to tell you about the testimony of God. Why would I waste your time trying to be cute and trying to entertain you? That's, that's the ministerial malpractice in my opinion. To waste your time. I'm not going to waste my time on politics. I could care less. What do I care about? The testimony of God. What should you care about preeminently? I know you have lesser concerns in your life, but what is your preeminent concern? The testimony of my God. And what my God has done for me and what my God instructs me to do. That should be your preeminent concern, beloved, if you're a Christian tonight. That should be your preeminent concern. I don't talk about current events up here. I could care less. I'm not going to waste your time. I don't have you for that long to begin with. <laughs> you know, we're going to talk about things that matter. We're going to talk about God's testimony to His people. 
and what we're supposed to be doing about it. Not that we would be knowledgeable, not that we would be intellectuals and we would be, be able to, to uh, engage in, in uh, exciting and creative apologetics. No. No, that we would live it. That we would live it. So we preach and teach the testimony of God in this place. That's who we are. Everything else is speculation. Right? I say, I've said it to you for below these eight and a half years. Leslie may have heard me say it back in 04. Everything else is speculation, beloved. Everything else is speculation. Except for God's Word. Look at verse 9. God says, God says, for the witness of God is this, that He bore witness to His Son. That's what the Bible is all about. So we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is mentioned multiple times in Scripture, how many witnesses does it take to confirm a thing? How many witnesses does it take? This is Old Testament law, but it's also, it's also confirmed uh, in the New Testament by Jesus and also by the Apostle Paul. How many witnesses does it take to confirm a thing? Okay, two or three. What does the text say? How many witnesses has God given you? What does the text say? Someone tell me. Three! God's made His own condition. God's made His own condition at the, at the, in, the, in what is called the courtroom of God. God has met His own condition. He brings three witnesses that the Son has come. Irrefutable testimony that the Son has come. God is making His case. So I want you to understand the imagery here. I want to make sure that we get this. God has made His case to mankind. And His case is irrefutable. Not only has God come in the most remarkable way, He has left testimony that God has come in the most remarkable way. Irrefutable testimony. Three witnesses. Right here in the text. The Spirit and the water and the blood. Of course, the Spirit, God's Spirit. There's 50 sermons here, but I don't have time, so we're going to make this really quick. But the Spirit, preeminently by His Word. The Spirit of God gives us His Word. The Spirit has given us testimony. He bears witness. The, the Bible says, look what it says. It says, the Spirit doesn't simply bring a truth. What is, this, what is the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? He is the truth. We're not relativists. Christians are not relativists. There are absolute truths. And if it's in here, it's absolute. And it's true. God means what He says. He says what He means. Right? So there's no equivocation in God's testimony about all that He has done to redeem the people for Himself. Verse 7 says, the Spirit is the truth. The next, the next witness is the water. There's no disagreement here among sound conservative uh, Bible scholars. John is referring to the baptism of Jesus. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? What happened to confirm that Jesus was, in fact, God Himself? Does anybody remember? Two things happened. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove, the text says. And then something else happened. The voice of God. 
<laughs> so, again, irrefutable, irrefutable evidence. The third witness is the blood. Again, sound conservative theologians, there's no debate here. This is the cross. So, we have the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Don't have time to enumerate. We may touch on some of them next week. All the signs and wonders surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus that God gave to confirm indeed that this was the Messiah. Don't have time to cover them all. But suffice to say, there was a pagan Roman soldier standing at the foot of the cross who knew nothing about Messiah, who knew nothing about Jesus Christ until that day, and yet what was his confession? Surely this was the Son of God. Beloved, you have no excuse. None of us have any excuse. We know this from Romans chapter 1. We are without excuse. Not only has God, came, not only has God come, He's left irrefutable evidence that He's come. He's met His own standard of, of, meeting, of making a case in, in a courtroom. Three witnesses. Irrefutable witnesses. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has come. The groom is here. The bride should be full of joy and in full preparation for the return of the groom. It's an awesome thing. It gives me goosebumps. It gives me goosebumps to think about it. So, beloved, this is no small, small matter to God. He has given His witness, His testimony. And when someone gives false testimony in court, what's it called? It's perjury, right? It's just a fancy legal word for a liar. So what does the text say? What does verse 10 say about those who do not believe this? Those who do not believe the testimony of God. What does the text say? Someone tell me. You are calling God a liar. That's pretty strong. You know, sometimes you just got to be strong. Sometimes you got to stand in the face of somebody, a skeptic, someone that's in your orbit, but someone that you know you love enough to share the truth with, you just got to say, listen, God says you're a liar, man. You say, the guy says, I don't believe the Bible. I don't find it credible. Well, God says you're a liar. God says you're calling him a liar. And we saw in the, in the earlier part of the book where John calls mankind a liar. So let's be blunt just for a few minutes. What is the atheist saying about God when he rejects the testimony of the Bible? What is the agnostic saying in his skepticism when he rejects the testimony of the Bible? What is the Muslim and the Hindu and the Buddhist and Jehovah's Witness Mormon saying when they reject the testimony of the Bible regarding Jesus? What is the unbelieving Jew saying when they reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah? What is the Catholic and nominal Protestant saying by merely uh, playing religion? They are saying God is a liar. Beloved, this is an, an, an uh, I guess it's an infinite insult to God. To have indifference, disdain, with God's Word. It's calling God a liar. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. I want you to feel the weight of that. That's what's at stake when men reject the Bible. That's what's at stake. Men are calling God 
a liar. I can remember as a much younger man, a company that I worked for, there was a young man who worked in the warehouse and I used to witness to him all the time, witness to him all the time, bought him a Bible, witness to him all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's no way he could find me now if he wanted to. I, I, sometimes I still think about him and I, I just wonder what God has done in his life. But you know what he used to say to him? He says, I want God to show, him, show himself to me. I want God to prove himself to me. You know what I used to say to him? Oh, guess what? He has. And you've called him a liar. How do you feel about that? <laughs> Listen, beloved, we can't let men get away with, with these kinds of arguments. We, we need to know our Bible. And we need to be able to stand there and say to them, in love, in love. You know, sometimes you just got to, if you love somebody, you speak hard truth to them, right? You're willing to, you're willing to risk the relationship. To speak truth. He says, man, I want, I want God to prove Himself to me. I said, He has! He has. But you won't believe. You won't believe. And you are calling God a liar in your unbelief. There's so much more to say about this, but uh, we don't have time, so I will move on. So we've seen that God has come for us. He has given us His revelation regarding His coming. We have His testimony. We have His witness. And lastly, God is giving us life. His life. It's God-sized life. Verses 11 and 12. I'll reread them. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. In 2001, I was here uh, as the interim pastor of the International Church of Milan for a six-month interim while the founding missionary was uh, back in the States on furlough. And I was going to preach my last sermon to the group. And I preached this text. I preached 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Because I wanted to communicate two non-negotiable things to them. I knew I would never preach to any of these people again. And I wanted to communicate two of the most important things I could say to them. The two most important things that I'd learned as a man. And that is, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You can have all the religion you want. You can be the perfect Catholic or the perfect Protestant or the perfect whatever you want to be. But God is not impressed. God is not impressed. It's all about the relationship. It's all about the relationship. It's all about that life. God has given us life. We were dead. But now we're alive. We were blind, but now we see. We're born again, right? That's Christianity. And we understand that men have tried to co-opt the beauty and the power and the majesty and mystery of the Bible and try to turn it into five easy steps or three easy steps or two easy steps. And, and you can be a Christian. doesn't matter how you live. doesn't matter how you speak. doesn't matter. Any, nothing really matters as long as you parrot the, the, the magic words. Beloved, this is blasphemous. You can't find this anywhere in the Bible. 
Salvation is discipleship. Discipleship is salvation. This is clear if we've read and studied and submitted to the truth of God's Word. He who has the Son has the life. I'm not talking about inhaling and exhaling. I'm not talking about brain waves. I'm talking about the begotten of God kind of life. Being born from above. And as we've talked about many times here, this is not simply duration. This is breadth and depth and height. This is the scope of life. It's God's life. It's, this is what God gives us. He gives us God's life. Are you living it? Do you have it? You'll know if you have it. <laughs> Your heart will be exploding. Not only to love Him, but to do what He says. And we know we, none of us do it perfectly. We know we must confess our sin. But He gives us the life. And He calls us to live the life. Daniel DeVoe wrote the famous book, Robinson Crusoe. I, I saw where one theologian said, you know, many Christians are like, they're like Robinson Crusoe. They claim to be Christians, but they, they cobble for themselves the best life they can from, from the remnants of this fallen world. Beloved, we're not called to live like that. We're not called to live like the world. We don't just cobble together the best life we can. What did we talk about last time I was here, two weeks ago? What, what is, what's said in the, 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 the two verses right before, I think it's verse 4 and verse 5? God's, God says, my people are what? Does anybody remember? We are overcomers. We are Nike. Nike. We are overcomers. We are victors. We are conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer, as Paul says in Romans 8. This is how the believer lives. This is how we live. Because we're alive. Our heart's beating. Our mind's working. We've met God and everything changed. Not just some stuff on Sunday. Everything changed. The way I, the way I think, the way I live, the way I hope, the way I dream, how I treat my wife, how I treat my, my fellow students, how I do my homework, how I do my job, how I give my money, how I serve my church. Everything changes. It all changes. Behold, the old things have passed away. New things have come. Amen? This is Christianity. This is Christianity. So we don't settle. This is the thrust of the book I wrote that may never get published. But that's okay. My editor is so slow. But anyway, this is the thrust. We don't settle. We don't settle. Sometimes we want to. Sometimes it's easy. It feels good to settle. It feels good to conform. It, feel, it feels good to just kind of get along with what everybody else is doing. But God's calling us, beloved, to something infinitely higher than that. Infinitely higher than that. So we get what Paul is saying. He runs the race. He just hopes he can finish. Remember? Is that how Paul said it? I run the race and I just hope I can do well. I, I'm going to try. You know, I just want to, I hope I can finish. What does Paul say? I run the win. Are you running the win? Are you running the win, beloved? You remember the great uh, 
the the way Pilgrim's Progress opens. You remember? Christian is weighted down by his sin and he's reading the Bible and he's under conviction and he he encounters evangelists. And evangelist says, son, why are you so miserable? And... uh, and Christian says, well, I, I've been reading in this book that, that uh, the judgment is coming and I fear that my sin will, will drag me into hell. And Evangelist says, well, if that's, your, if that's your condition, why do you stand here? And Christian says, well, I don't know what to do. And Evangelist says, you see that narrow gate? Run. <laughs> and what is, you remember what, what Christian does? <laughs> Anybody remember? You know, he doesn't just start, you know, sauntering off to the narrow gate. He doesn't jog to the narrow gate. Boom! He heads off to the narrow gate. And you remember his family and his friends come out and they they call to him, stop! And this happens often in a family when someone's genuinely converted. Stop! Come back! Come back and be comfortable with the world. Compromise with the world. Live like everybody else. Stop, Christian. Come back. Does anybody remember what Christian did? (laughs) He put his fingers in his ears and he said, life... Life, eternal life, and he was running to the narrow gate. Beloved, there's a ton of theology there and a ton of, you know, there's just a a huge, obviously, it's why it's the best read book in the world apart from the Bible. A ton of metaphoric meaning there for all who truly believe. So God means for you to believe He's come. He means for you to believe His testimony. And then He means for you to live it. As Paul told Timothy, to lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. This is God's challenge for us tonight. To proactively and with great purpose and vigor expend all our energy to glorify Jesus in the world and to use our gift in this church and in the next church that you go to. Life is too short to settle, beloved. It's too short. We have too many important things to do than to get, simply get comfortable here and allow the world to anesthetize us and settle for things that don't matter. Those who genuinely believe God's testimony, they will live Hebrews 11 lives. They will live fully persuaded lives. They will pursue and obey this awesome God in victory, in defeat, in abundance, in need, in blessing, in trial, in life, in death. Our lives shout, our God is God. He's great. And I give myself to Him. I'm a, I'm a, a happy, a happy disciple of Jesus. And I give my life to Him. And as we've talked about so many times, hard circumstances don't blow the real Christian over. We believe and lay hold. We believe the testimony of God even when Satan is shouting in our ears and circumstances shouting in our ears. He's not there. He doesn't love you. If He loved you, He'd take this cancer away from you. You know? Satan comes and circumstance comes. But our God's testimony is bigger than cancer. Amen? It's bigger than the hurricane. It's bigger than the tsunami. It's bigger than financial calamity. It's bigger. Our God and His testimony is sufficient for all things. I still remember 
and I'm done. I still remember um, driving Karen to her first chemotherapy um, back in 2008. And I, I'd put a CD in the CD player because I wanted to play it for her. She knew everything that the words were going to say, but I wanted her to hear them again. And so as I drove her to the hospital for her first chemo treatment, I had the CD in the player. It's by Michael W. Smith. The song is called, I Know Your Name. And I love this. I love this song. And the song opens with the believer in tears confessing his need and his loneliness and his pain. And the chorus rises. And it's God's answer to His beloved. Some of you have experienced this who have been through hard things with the Lord. God says, yes, I know your name. Every prayer you've prayed. I'm the one who brought you to this place. And man, that's what I wanted to hear. She knew it, but I wanted to hear it again. She knew it. God had brought her to this place. And God was going to glorify Himself in her and through her circumstance. Whether life or death, beloved. Whether life or death. The song continues. The voice who sings... He says, I am the voice who sings to you. I am the hand that clings to you. Oh, my child, I've always known your name. Never fear. I am here. I am the God who loves you omnipotently. And no one or nothing can rip you out of my hand. You are secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Beloved, you're supposed to live that. You're supposed to believe it. You're supposed to believe the testimony of God. You're supposed to live the testimony of God. I'm so thankful for this text. I love this text. Not only has the groom come, we have irrefutable evidence that the groom has come. The groom has come for us and He has delivered us and nothing can separate us from Him. Not for a billion eternities, beloved. I pray that moves your heart. I pray that fuels your Christianity. I pray you go out in the world and make Jesus famous as you simply run on all the wonder and awe of this message and share with your unbelieving friends. Share with them. Not only has He come, He's left irrefutable evidence. Share with them. Share with them the three witnesses of God. Share with your friends. Share with your family. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that not only have You come, but You've left evidence that You've come. You have met Your own legal standard. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord, that we stand on a rock. Thank You, Lord, that You have given us the truth. Thank You, Lord, that we are Nike. Thank You, Lord, that we can live that truth.
Thank You, Lord, that we are overwhelmingly conquering as we simply believe and obey. So Lord, I pray that it would please You to use us in a mighty way. That this church would be known for radical disciples. A church that radically loves Jesus. A church that serves one another. A church that loves one another. A church that gives. A church that witnesses. And gives testimony to this most remarkable story. God has come. The groom has come. And we are His bride. We praise You, great God. Thank You for this beautiful story. Thank You that we are part of it. Have Your way with us, God, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.